Welcome to Legal Tips, a podcast series from the Tort Trial and Insurance Practice Section of the American Bar Association, also known as TIPS. As leaders in trial practice and issues of justice involving tort and insurance law, TIPS brings together plaintiffs, defense, corporate, and in-house counsel to tackle issues confronting the legal profession. Welcome to Legal Tips. I'm Jill Mariani, Chair Designee of TIPS Government Law Committee and today's host. Legal Tips is designed to present you with a balanced discussion of thought-provoking issues and suggest creative approaches and solutions to problems that arise in the practice of tort and insurance law. Today's episode is the Courthouse Dogs. You heard me right. A courthouse dog is a trained certified dog that provides emotional support to people who are in some way involved in the criminal justice system. Now, this is certainly a creative approach to assist those individuals who have some difficulty in participating in courtroom matters. And that could be in any capacity, whether they're a party, a counsel, a witness, a juror, a judge, or just an observer. Today, we have two guests, Ellen O'Neill Stevens who is a senior deputy prosecuting attorney in the King County Prosecutor's Office in Seattle, Washington, and the founder of Courtroom Dogs Program. And we have Deborah Starr, a psychologist who works at Decision Quest, a leading jury and trial consulting firm with offices throughout the country. Welcome to you both. Good morning. It's so nice to be here. Well, morning for you and afternoon for us. I understand you've got some of you got waylaid in Chicago, and, and uh, Ellen, you're out on the, the Pacific Coast. That's correct. So we have three time zones covered here. Um, Ellen, briefly tell us about the Courthouse Dog Program. Oh, that would be my pleasure. It's been in existence um, unofficially since 2003, um, and it um, our, our mission for the Courthouse Dog Program is to support the use of well-trained dogs for everyone in the criminal justice system. Um, We believe that they can provide great emotional support in a very stressful environment. So, to be very clear, this is not a traditional service dog, such as the one who assists someone with a sight or hearing impairment, correct? That's correct. Um, These dogs are trained to be service dogs. They have the same standards of training as a service dog. However, they're placed in a facility. And in this case, the facility is a courthouse. So what was the inspiration for this concept? Um, The inspiration for this concept are my uh, incredible son, Sean, and his uh, skilled companion dog, Jeter. And uh, Sean, at the age of 24, uh, received uh, Jeter from Canine Companions for Independence. And when I saw the help that Jeter could give Sean, it occurred to me that Jeter could also uh, assist people in the criminal justice system as well. And when did you actually see this concept come together in a courthouse setting? In other words, when did you have your aha moment? Well, um, it, it... The germ for this was planted when my husband and I and Sean were down in Santa Rosa, California, uh, being trained to uh, work with Jeter. And uh, in our training class, there were a number of people in the medical field who were training to obtain uh, facility dogs to assist patients in hospitals. And I'd never heard of a dog working in a facility before, and uh, it was there that I, I... uh, was first introduced to this notion that dogs could work in an institutional setting. 
So I tucked that away in my mind, and uh, we brought Jeter home. And uh, for um, caregiving reasons, there was one day out of the week when um, Jeter could not accompany Sean. So I decided to bring him to drug court. I was the drug court prosecutor, and that's when he first started working. And what what happened when you when you brought him to the courthouse? Well, initially, I um, asked the judge uh, if it would be all right to bring Jeter into the um, the courtroom and to be a part of the uh, drug court team. And uh, she's not a animal person at all, but the other team members thought it might be a good idea. And um, then um, we realized that the, that the children in their recovery from drug and alcohol addiction were very similar to patients in a a medical institution. So it it seemed to be a fit, a facility dog fit for Jeter to be there. And what we found out was that uh, the children relaxed and some of the kids looked forward to coming to court for a change. And he was a part of the team that brought us together. And uh, certainly as a prosecutor in drug court, I'm I'm kind of viewed as the bad guy. And so Jeter uh, was a bridge to those kids because they appreciated the fact that I brought a dog to court to uh, to help them in their recovery. So Jeter, though, did not become the dog for your your county prosecutor's office. Is that correct? That's correct. See, Jeter was just working one day a week, and while he was working in drug court, there was one situation where uh, we were waiting to go outside. We were outside uh, my lobby in the prosecutor's office. And there was a boy there who uh, looked um, quite upset, and there were a number of attorneys standing around. And uh, all of a sudden, I looked over at him, and he kind of jumped up and ran over to Jeter and asked if he could play with him. And I said, sure. And then as they played, I asked the prosecutor what was going on, and she said that his mother had sexually abused him and that he had just shut down. So I asked him if he could talk about it with Jeter beside him, and he said he thought he could, and in fact he did. It was just a remarkable turnaround for him. So it was at that point in time that we decided that it might be a good idea for the King County Prosecutor's Office to have their own facility dog, and that's how we got Ellie. Deborah, you must have seen instances in which witnesses need some way in which to acclimate themselves into a courtroom, because a courtroom could be an unfriendly place. So how do you react to this program? Well, I'm actually thrilled with the whole idea of it. Um, I think witnesses certainly need some kind of calming influence, but I actually think everybody in the courtroom can do that, uh, need that as well, because especially in criminal court, um, it can be a very unsettling situation for the jurors, even people who are witnessing the court proceedings, and a dog somehow can sort of soften the atmosphere. And by providing that, it allows people to listen better, to participate better if it's a witness speaking, but also it helps the jurors listen better. So that that this is actually, you know, now being integrated into the courtroom system is really, really remarkable. Do you have some suggestions for Ellen as to how she can deal with the issues that may come up in the courtroom, like objections from attorneys? Or judges? Well, I think that, I mean, I think she's got um, some very good stories and experience which could, you know, be leverage in terms of explaining the benefits of it. And certainly it sounds like once they meet one of the dogs that there's, you know, they also have, um, you know, the, that, that winning experience to make the difference. But um, I think the objections could come 
from different van, you know points of view. People could say, well, it'll be a disruption. Well, obviously, they've never met a dog that's trained in this way. So again, you'd have to like help educate them about that. There may be some concerns about well, what what about people who are afraid of dogs or allergic to dogs, and then being able to kind of look at the statistics and likelihood of that that it's actually quite low, but not certainly not something to be ruled out. But I think that again, anything that's going to facilitate the proceedings being run more smoothly and more effectively, a judge would be interested in that, and then therefore the attorneys would be as well. Well, Deborah, I have a question for you. Um, The situation um, that we have to deal with the most when we ask for a dog to accompany a witness to the stand is an objection from defense counsel that um, having this dog accompany, let's say, a child to the stand would create undue sympathy for the child, and therefore that would be prejudicial towards the um, defendant. Um, Do you have any comments or thoughts about how we can address that um, concern? Well, I think that a dialogue would be helpful if it's possible to find out, well, how, how is it that you actually think that makes them more sympathetic as opposed to um, more um, effective? You know, there's a there's a fine line between that, um, but I don't, you know, think that they can argue with you that if a witness is able to actually tell their story more effectively and in a way that they can be heard, that if the defendants don't have anything to defend against that's inappropriate, that this will only facilitate the the dynamic. Ellen, isn't the dog usually in a place in the courtroom where it is? Uh, not distracting, and um, isn't that part of the argument? Well, um, certainly that's what we have um, tried to do. And, um, you know, we're just brainstorming here for um, amongst our colleagues for a way to make this um, work better. And um, let me just run these thoughts by you. What we're doing is when we, when we ask um, the judge to allow a dog to accompany a witness, we explain to the judge, uh, and this is on the record, uh, with the dog present in the courtroom, that um, our philosophy is that our dogs are available to anybody in the criminal justice system. Not, they're not just a tool for the prosecution. And we also make a record that they assist people in drug court, they visit kids in detention, um, that sort of thing. So, uh, and we're t- we do that so that we can tell, uh, the judge can feel more comfortable that he's being um, impartial in terms of how he's going to rule one way or another regarding this motion. Um, and then we also uh, establish the dog's experience and training in the courtroom. And um, then we uh, have a discussion about the best way for this to take place. And in most cases, um, we have the, the uh, dog um, just beside the witness in the stand and either sitting or lying down. And our dogs are so well-trained that they can maintain that position for the time of direct and cross-examination. Um, that seems to be working well for us, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how we could might improve on that situation. I, uh, well, I think that just being able to have the dog there, um, a full-time courtroom dog, in other words, not just a witness dog, would probably you know help with some of that. And again, I think that a dog in the courtroom changes the the sort of overall feeling of the courtroom, but I think it doesn't it doesn't diminish the effectiveness. If anything, it contributes to it. 
because when people are um, more emotionally balanced, they can they can respond better. They can be more effective in their thinking. And I think that um, the presence of the dog really kind of brings everybody down to a um, a more I, I don't want to say peaceful in a new agey way, but just in a more balanced way. And that can only benefit everybody, including the judge. Well, but Deborah, I, I, what about this argument? Um, court is a very formal proceeding. Does a dog in a courtroom decrease the formality of the proceeding? Well, maybe. <laughs> I mean, maybe by definition. But I don't think, I think that a courtroom um, being formal doesn't necessarily mean it couldn't have the presence of a dog. Because a courtroom, by design, over the years, it, it's kind of intimidating. And I think that if that's really looked at carefully in terms of justice being served, that the intimidation does not contribute to justice. So, again, these are, these are like big questions, um, but I don't think that a dog makes it less formal in, in a way, if you're looking at it as formal as the only way the job can get done. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm happy to say that what you have said uh, has proven to be the case thus far for us because we have had uh, judges say that uh, he noticed after a sex abuse trial that everybody got very quiet, everybody was very focused uh, when the dog was present in the court, and he thought that it benefited everyone in the courtroom when the dog was there during that hour or so. Ellen, have you ever had a situation where the dog was disruptive? Um, no, I haven't. Um, but I but I attribute that to the fact that uh, these dogs are very well trained and uh, we are proponents that these dogs be uh, certified by Assistance Dogs International um, so that their public access uh, qualifications are extremely high. So that hasn't been the case um, thus far, which is good because the reason why we're stressing the use of well-trained dogs is because we don't want to have a dog that could be disruptive in the court and establish bad precedents for this novel use um, to uh, um, you know, comfort victims and, and help us seek justice. Let's talk a little bit about how the jury may react to the presence of the dog in the courtroom. And I imagine you might have the whole spectrum of a juror reacting uh, favorably and a juror maybe being very skeptical. So is this something, Deborah, that you think Ellen should raise during voir dire? Um, meaning in terms of the, there will be a dog present? Yes. And would they be uncomfortable with it? I think the less emphasis on the dog, the better. First of all, from for most jurors, it's really their first time in the courtroom. So they don't really know what to expect. And if there's a dog there, then that's just part of the expectation. I mean, you know, now there's a new expectation. So I don't see bringing any attention to the dog has, has value. Um, those who may have a concern will probably speak of it, but they would do it in a very discreet manner if, it's not, if there's no big conversation about it because they don't want attention brought to themselves. I mean, if a juror has an allergy or something, they might say something. But most jurors are are pretty willing to go along with what's happening. And um, I well, Deborah, only see it as something positive, frankly. Uh, well, Deborah, just last week, uh, Ellie uh, participated in two trials. Uh, both mm-hmm. were domestic violence trials. Oh, wait, wait a minute. And, uh, Ellen, Ellen, tell them who Ellie is. I don't think we introduced oh, Ellie, Ellie. I'm sorry. Ellie is uh, the dog that is working in the King County Prosecutor's mm-hmm. Office, full-time as a facility dog. And... Um, 
the judge asked the prosecutor for a jury instruction regarding the use of the dog. And we hadn't come across that before. And so, um, and we just kind of whipped something together. But again, uh, I was wondering, does this kind of bring more attention to the dog than... A than jury instruction? Yes, he, he wanted a jury instruction for the jurors that would instruct them to uh, not give the presence of the dog um, any undue consideration or um, make it appear that the fact that the victim had a dog by his or her side was some sort of communication that that person was, in fact, a victim. Um, so it, it's, it's a struggle, and uh, we, hadn't, we hadn't come across that request. Well, you know, each courtroom, <laughs> each judge has jurisdiction over their courtroom, so you probably will have some judges who, who, who want that. But again, I think it can be worded in a way that's pretty benign. In other words, you know, there's going to be a dog here. It's going to be accompanying a couple of the witnesses. It allows the witness to tell their story more effectively. Um, and, you know, we ask that you not give added weight because of the presence of a dog. I mean, just leave it at that. Okay. Not even talk about the sympathy word, because most people won't necessarily tie that in. Right. Um, that would be like, I mean, because if you bring any more attention, that would be like, you know, don't pay attention to the witness because the, the they're here in, the, in the courtroom, or, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, or, you know, they're they're young. I mean, because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all of those factors are very real factors in many cases. So if the judge wants it, I would just do it in a way that's very minimal. Well, getting back to a juror's, uh, the juror's uh, perspective on the dog, we did have one case where there were three sisters who were sexually abused, and the two older sisters did fine, but the youngest, who was about eight, really needed to have Ellie in the courtroom with her. And after the trial, the prosecutor asked the jurors, did, it, did they have any opinion about the dog? And, and as you mentioned, Deborah, they just assumed that you know, dogs coming into the courtroom were you know, something that happened all the time, number one. And then the, uh, the jurors were asked, was, did they have any special question in their mind as to why one witness, one sister, had the dog and the other two didn't. And they just said, no, they thought that because she was younger that uh, it, it made sense to them that she would derive more comfort from the dog than her older sisters. So I think you're right in terms of jurors trying to go with the flow um, when they see a dog in the courtroom. Ellen, do you prepare motion papers in anticipation of uh, a judge questioning the precedence for having either a dog or some something else to assist the witness? Um, yes, we do. Um, I, on, you can find a sample brief on our website, um, and in it I analyze the, um, the case law in support of using a dog to uh, provide support to a victim witness. And the analogous case law is um, a child using a doll or a uh, teddy bear um, to uh, for support. And we've just taken it one step for, further and um, said that uh, a dog works in the same way, only a dog is, we believe, much more effective in providing comfort. And so far in King County now, we've probably had over oh, 12, 15 cases uh, where the dog has gone in the courtroom and um, there hasn't been any problem, and it hasn't been raised on an issue as an issue on appeal. Uh, we also have three other dogs working in a county north of us, two counties north of us, and it is the same situation there. It, it hasn't created any problem. Um, this might be a good time to tell our audience that Ellen's colleague, Paige Early, 
will be participating with Ellie at a TIPS program entitled Providing Persons with Disabilities and the Elderly with Equal Access to Justice. This is going to be a program uh, in collaboration with Stetson University School of Law at its Gulfport campus on May 18th, 2009. And Ellie's colleague Paige will be on a panel that will address the topic of service and emotional support animals as a reasonable accommodation. Um, actually, Ellen, can you, can you tell our audience a little bit about how your colleague uses the courthouse dog with um, a different type of witness and not a child, uh, not a, a, a young child of sexual abuse? Uh, yes, I can. Um, age, uh, Paige is, um, I think, an expert in the field of elder abuse. She uh, gives presentations across the nation, and uh, that is her special position in our office, and she uses a, uh, Ellie with um, her victim witnesses as well. Uh, the two of them will go off to a nursing home for an interview, or while they're in the courtroom setting, Ellie will be by their side and, and actually go into the courtroom with them. Um, and in addition to um, elder abuse cases, we've also used LA during um, inter- forensic interviews with developmentally disabled people, um, and that has assisted them in being able to recount what has occurred. And then uh, we've also had two occasions where uh, physically disabled people um, had LA beside them when they were in the courtroom as well. So it, it made them you know, more comfortable because for the physically disabled, like my son, Sean, yeah, there's, uh, when you're in a courthouse, there's, you have two issues going. First, your disability that you have to kind of manage around um, the intimidating situation of testifying in court. So um, uh, having Ellie uh, assist them as well has been um, another part of our program that's been very successful. What is a forensic, what do you mean by a forensic interview? Well, a forensic interview is mostly used in uh, cases where the victim witnesses are um, very young or developmentally disabled. And the purpose of a forensic interview is to interview this individual, usually a child, um, in a manner that does not lead them or suggest an answer. Um, In the past, the defense used to say that this, you know, child was very impressionable, and the way the interviewer in this case, in in that case would have been a law enforcement officer or an untrained prosecutor, the way these uh, people interviewed the child, it suggested an answer and that they weren't getting an objective, uh, an account of what had occurred. And so forensic interviewers usually have uh, degrees um, in social work, and they have been trained to interview a, uh, a child in a manner that does not suggest an answer so that they can get a a clear account of what occurred. So in that sense, the interviewer can't show any compassion or any um, uh, emotion or empathy, whereas the dog, just by being a dog, can provide that. Yeah, that's correct. Um, Ashley, one of our interviewers, said that, you know, there have been times when children are crying and the most she can do is offer them a tissue. Um, and so now she says, you know, well, you've got Ellie by your side or Jeter by your side. Why don't you give him a hug? And, you know, he would like that. Or why don't you pet him? He, that would make him feel better. And so it's a way of um, providing comfort by su- making that suggestion, and, and it works. Deborah, are, is there anything that you can suggest to Ellen or to prosecutors that are using uh, this type of program that they should consider in preparing a court 
case when where the dog is going to be assisting a witness? Prepare the court for that. Proceeding? Prepare the court, or whether whether this would well, be a situation to even have a mock trial. I mean, we want yeah. Well, I I think that it'd be very interesting. I mean, as I sit and listen to this, to actually doing some research on the effectiveness of it. Um, uh, you know, perhaps it's something that you know we could discuss at some point, doing a trial simulation with and without the dog to see how that really impacts um, the witness, the, the outcome, the jury, the outcome, how people listen, because. You know, we don't really know how this works. We don't really know why animals can have this kind of impact on humans, and and yet they do. So, again, as this is just starting out, this program has already been uh, successful in the little steps that it's taken. So I think each step sort of needs to be monitored and looked at and used as a way to reflect greater success in the future, but maybe optimizing it um, through time with some kind of research and, and results. Well, Deborah, that is a fabulous idea, um, and the we've been kind of coming at it from an, another angle. We have contacted some animal behaviorists at the University of Washington, and they're interested in you know studying how the dogs work in this capacity. Um, but I, I uh, and then we also have been in touch with Heather Pfeiffer, who is a criminologist at the University of Baltimore, and uh, she's interested in studying the effect of the dogs. But I think. Uh, what you've just suggested, kind of uh, one with or one without, and, and seeing the difference that the dog's presence makes is a fabulous idea. Ellen, I'm sure you must have some wonderful stories, but can you give our audience uh, an example of, a sto- of, a, of an instance when a courthouse dog made an impact on someone's life? Well, um, yes, I can, and um, this goes back to my days when I was the uh, juvenile court, uh, drug court prosecutor, uh, when Jeter first started working in drug court. And um, as I mentioned, a lot of the kids really enjoyed him being there, and there was one special case where there were three sisters, uh, ages you know, 13, 15, and 16, who were using cocaine and methamphetamine, stealing cars, burglarizing houses, and just really acting out um, their drug addiction and committing felony offenses. So we decided to take all three sisters into court, and um, it was a struggle for the three of them. Drug court takes a long time, and after two years, we finally got the two older sisters to the point where they successfully completed the program and the felony charges were dismissed against them. But their younger sister, Chelsea, when when her sisters graduated, she just kind of fell off the cliff. And she ran away from home and relapsed and started using cocaine again, and she was missing in action. And uh, we issued a warrant for her arrest, and when she was arrested, we met and decided that we couldn't help Chelsea anymore. We had offered her everything possible. So when she was brought up to court, uh, we told her that we were very sorry about that other kids needed to get into the program, and and, um, we couldn't do anything more for her. And uh, she was in handcuffs, and she started to cry, and um, I knew that she liked Jeter, and so I asked Judge Inveen if it'd be okay if I brought Jeter over to visit with her before she went back to her cell. And Judge Inveen said yes, and so I uh, gave brought Jeter over there, and she was unhandcuffed, and um, I gave Jeter the up command, which means he puts his two paws on the table where she was seated, and she just stood up and buried her head in his neck and started to cry. And and we were all very quiet watching this. And then she kind of composed herself and said, um, uh, 
see, Jeter believes in me. Would you please give me another chance? And um, we all kind of took a big breath and um, look, you know, we said, sure. I mean, it was just irresistible. I mean, Jeter's got this incredibly soulful look, and he kind of looked over at us, too. And, and so we said, sure. And I'm very happy to report that that was the turning point for her. She started coming to court early. We would, you know, defense counsel wasn't crazy about this, but the two of us would take Jeter for a walk before court, before court and chit-chat and bond over that. And she had Jeter in the back of the courtroom with her. And, um, um, you know, she pulled it together. She started going to school. She got off of drugs. She um, was able to complete her treatment program, and she um, graduated, and uh, it was just a really wonderful situation. And at the time of her graduation, she said, you know, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'll come back and see Jeter. And, you know, I thought, well, that's nice, and maybe she will, but she, she didn't. She never came back to juvenile court. But when uh, Dr. Pfeiffer was out here visiting us, about three years later, we just happened to run into Chelsea. She was in court paying a traffic ticket, and uh, I was, it was just a wonderful reunion. And uh, Dr. Pfeiffer, I introduced them, and I'd been telling her about Chelsea. And uh, Dr. Pfeiffer said, well, I'd like to interview you. And Chelsea said, sure, that, that would be great. And so we got all set up for that, and um, Dr. Pfeiffer said, well, Tell me, you know, what, what impact did Jeter have on you? And Chelsea simply said, well, he saved my life. And um, I think as a prosecutor, you know, I'm, I started off putting bad guys in jail, and, and that felt very satisfying, protecting victims and the community. But it's so much more satisfying to me as a prosecutor to uh, help people uh, get on top of their lives and... Um, succeed in life and uh, making them participating members of society and have her view her experience with us is is one of the best things that ever happened to her. So that story means a, a great deal to me. Well, Ellen, I'm sure Deborah is thinking of a whole host of ideas to discuss with you at another time because <laughs> I think that this probably gave her much food for thought. I would like to um, also remind the, or tell the audience that Deborah's colleague, Mary Grace Schaefer, will also be participating at that uh, program down at Stetson, and she will be on a panel on jury selection. So as we have to come to a conclusion here um, today, could you please tell us, Ellen, where people can get more information about the Courthouse Dog Program? Um, yes, I'd be delighted to. Um, we have a website, and my program partner is Celeste Walson, and she has a degree in veterinary medicine. So she takes care of the dog portion of our program, and I take care of the legal aspects of it. And our website is www.courthousedogs.com, and uh, it's pretty uh, extensive and contains a great deal of information. And if you can't find uh, the answers to your questions on our website, we have contact information for both of us. And um, Deborah, could you please tell us how we can learn more information about Decision Quest and your work? Well, we also have a website. It's www.decisionquest.com, which talks about all the different things that we offer, including um, the success of research projects and projects.
injecting that into jury selection, witness prep, and the kinds of things that we do. And for more information about TIPS, as well as the Access to Justice program at Stetson, please visit www.abanet.org slash tips. And thank you for listening to Legal Tips. Thanks for listening to this edition of Legal Tips. We hope you'll listen to the rest of this special series brought to you by the Tort Trial and Insurance Practice Section of the American Bar Association. Legal Tips is produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network.